The following is a Barrett Sports Media production. We do the digging so you don't have to. We've got breaking news. Breaking news. Breaking news. Bringing you the biggest stories from the industry you care about. This is the Media Noise Podcast. Well, let's hear it. Now, here's your host, Dimitri Ravanos. I'm not going to waste a whole lot of time up top here today. If you looked at the uh, information on your phone or whatever device it is you're listening to this on, you saw we've got an extraordinarily long episode. Bomani Jones is my guest ahead of the launch of Game Theory. Happens this Sunday on HBO. If you've read my stuff before, you might have seen me mention Bo and I have known each other for a long time. Longer than I have known my kids, in fact. Uh, And I could not be happier for or prouder of the success I've watched him have because we knew each other when I was an unhappy rock DJ and he was an unhappy grad student. Uh, So to see what he has become is is a really special thing, as I'm sure you feel that way about any of your friends that have success. I'm going to shut up. We're going to jump right into it. Here's my conversation with Bomani Jones. Remember, Game Theory makes its debut Sunday night on HBO. All right, man. So I was thinking about this uh, earlier today as I was just sort of going through history and what I wanted to ask you and all that kind of stuff. I, I don't know if I have known anyone in the business at this point as long as I've known you like this is a weird business where relationships (laughs) form get strong and then completely go away so I I always appreciate you taking time for me no man no problem I guess it's what about 15 years um more than 15 and change uh closer to 17 because we met when the Canes were oh that's uh, 06 that's in the, yeah, in the Stanley Cup run. And yeah. Oh, yeah. I guess that's true. Closer to 16 at this point. Yeah. Uh, we, we were the two people who weren't from there and were like, what in the <laughs> world is going Like, why are like, it ain't even that many of y'all. Right. Right. And we were the only two, I think, paying attention for work purposes that also lived in Durham and that recognized yes. that this was not a thing. <laughs> yes. So speaking of those days, when the teaser first goes up, the one where you asking us not to tell your mama that you swear, mm-hmm. uh, Spencer Hall, your buddy, tweets it out with the message that he hopes the guy that fo- fired you from Raleigh Radio uh, is sick about this. I wonder, do you still think about that day at all? And just the the crazy difference between the fear and uncertainty versus now? Not really. Like part of it is interesting is that I do weekly radio hits on the station that didn't hire me. Like they 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 send me fifty bucks and I do a hit every every week. Like like we're at that point now, and I don't deal with the guy who made the decision at least too much on that level. Now, like one thing I do think about with that is, so let's say that that person was sick. Okay, I wasn't gonna be working in that capacity for very long. Like, I don't think it was hard for people to tell when I was working there that I was probably going to wind up going off to do something better. Like, it wasn't like that was going to be the start of my 20-year career working at Raleigh and Durham, and then all of a sudden they took it away from me. Like, no, nah, I was <laughs> I was, I was, was probably going to be moving um, to do something else. And it really did work out because after that happened, the next job I got was like a significant raise, and it was on Sirius, you know, and all this stuff. So they made a call that, I'd love to hear them explain it. That one, no sure. one's ever done, right? <laughs> no, no one ever did, but they made that call and that was their decision. And it actually worked out very well for me. And so when those things happen and they work out well for me, I just don't spend a lot of time being mad at people who did whatever it was they did. Just to establish my credibility, did, how did you find out that you did no longer had a job there? 
I found out I no longer had a job there when you called me to tell me that you were sorry to hear that my time <laughs> slot was going to somebody else. And I had no idea that my time <laughs> slot was going to somebody else. And well, then I called my boss and he told me that he could neither confirm nor deny. <laughs> One of the most awkward calls you could, uh, you could have with a friend. I, you know, you mentioned that you recognize you would not have been there very long. I, I wonder if you can... Like it, and maybe it's not about looking back on that because it's not a one for one, but there certainly is something to be said for a talent like you finding the right platform and having the right support around you. Yeah. So the thing for me was that place, uh, A50 to Buzz and Six Twenty the Bull, was the perfect place for me at the time when I got there. Um, and I tell the story all the time that I was working at ESPN.com and I had a contract and they did not renew it and it broke my heart. And I was calling everybody to complain and talk about how people had done me wrong. And I called Adam Gold and I was telling him about it. And his response was, so this means you're free to do radio. <laughs> and like, like, he, like all this stuff about my feelings, Adam, Adam really ain't built for that. Right. He right. was like, so, you know, you can you can do radio. OK. And so he called me not too long after and he said, all right, so here's what I'm thinking. I want you to do Saturday mornings and you and Shannon Penn have a chemistry. So I want him to produce you. And if this goes the way I think it does, um, Dave Glenn is going to take a couple months off in the summer. And I want you to be the afternoon drive host to fill in for him. And I said, okay. And I got to doing radio and it was instantly like, oh, okay, this feels right. Like right. this is what I'm supposed to do. And the biggest reason that place was great for me was that it wasn't a massive operation. And so when I hear people, and even later in my career, when I started dealing with different radio operations, I never had anybody over my shoulder about anything involving content. That never was it. And so I was just coming up with what I wanted to come up with. And it was all new to me. Like I was learning the software and I learned how to run the board and all that stuff. And there would be nights where I'd be up in there till 10, 11 o'clock at night because I had come up with some idea and try to figure out how to cut it and getting people in the office to come in the back room and record stuff so I could make something happen, you know, and all of that. Like it was, it was, I had the the freedom that I needed to have. I had support in the sense that I always had Adam in particular to, you know, give me advice when I needed it and let me know when I was going too far and all of those things. But when I got into radio, it was like, oh, okay, this is what I've been supposed to be doing. So let's talk about now. Obviously, the show is going to air Sunday nights. Obviously, it's going to be on HBO. You'll be in a suit talking about current events. There will be jokes. I think the natural inclination is going to be a lot of people comparing you to last week tonight. But at the same time, it's sports are on HBO. So they're going to be people that compare it to real sports too. do either of those comparisons feel accurate? And, and how do you sort of thread the needle with those two audiences? Yeah, real sports isn't accurate at all. I don't think there's going to be anything terribly similar uh, between this show and that show. Last week tonight fits in some ways. Um, like we're going to we're going to do some like deep deeper dive like longer essays, but they're not going to be like the last week tonight's ones, which are more like explanatory and expository. Ours yeah. are going to be. This is what Bomani Jones thinks about this, and then we're going to beef it up with all the tools and toys that we have around here um, to go do that. But we got flexibility. We're going to have a field department, so we're going to be going out and shooting things. Like there are going to be things that are on this show that don't have me in them at all on camera. It's just going to be ideas that we all collectively came up with to go shoot as like interstitial ideas and things to pop in and stuff like that. Like, if I'm going to be honest with you, I don't know the show, especially if you're talking about in sports, I don't know the show that's been anything like the show yeah. that we're cooking, that we're cooking up right now. Like we're going to have, you know, we're going to have interviews obviously, but it's not going to be 
real sports interviews are typically a lot more like serious. These are probably going to be more in the lifestyle vein of interviews, but depending on who the person is, right? Like if it's somebody that's here to talk about something serious and that's worth hearing and the most compelling angle, then I suppose we're going to wind up doing that. But this is, this is an entertainment. Like last week tonight is an entertainment product. This is going to be an entertainment product in a way that real sports, the goal is a bit more to inter- to inform yeah. than it is to entertain. And this is leaning far more heavily toward the entertainment. Right. Different ease, right? Educate versus entertain. Um, So I I read recently when you were on the ringers, I think, was it the NBA show? You talked about that the idea of sports talk in late night or sports talk on late night television is one that is ripe with failure so far. Like you are trying to do something that literally has not been done before. Is that something that you recognized the second you signed on for this project? Or is that something that someone around you said, hey, by the way, Oh, no, I noticed that immediately. And by the way, I noticed it immediately. And if I hadn't noticed it immediately, let me tell you who always notices these things immediately. The people who represent you, right? Because they're they're the people that have been in these wars and been in this game for the longest and keep track of all this stuff. So, yeah, no, I recognize this is somebody, this is something that people haven't been able to make work previously. I got my reasons why I think that I can make this work as a host that I think some other people have not been able to. Um, where I think like what I told the guys when I did the first call about this show and they sent me a deck and the deck was very clearly intended for a comedian. Mm-hmm. And, but I read through it and I said, look, this deck does not fit me because I'm not a comedian. I'm not going to come in here and pretend to you like I can be a comedian. I'm like, that's just not me. Like if that's what you're looking for, I'm probably not the person, but I am perfect for this show. And I think that I'm the only person that you're going to find that's really going to fit this show in what you need, because what I think you need to make a show like this work that has often been missing is a combination of a couple of things. The first one is that the people have to respect the opinions of the host. Right. I think that one is very, very crucial and one that gets lost. You can't just send somebody out here to be cracking jokes. People take sports really seriously. They're going to tell if you, you know, be able to tell if you don't really know what it is that you're talking about. And in fact, they're actually going to be looking for it. Right. So sports fans have to take you seriously, but also you got to have a reach that goes outside of sports because there aren't that many like super duper nuts and bolts sports fans. That's just not how it works. They, they, mm-hmm. We're not going to be talking about X's and O's and stuff like that. That's not going to happen. So you have to find somebody that people take seriously, but also isn't getting so bogged down in the minutia of sports, but also somebody who is entertaining enough that somebody who might not even care that much about the material is going to sit up and pay some level of attention to it. Or you have to be able to find a way to broaden out from just sports to a place that other people, you know, people who aren't the biggest sports fans can get to, but also you can't be contrived in trying to do that or like turn this into every big macro issue in the world. So you're going to have to be somebody that can be taken seriously, but also that can also that someone that can also be entertaining and can relate this material to people that are not necessarily your diehards. The Venn diagram on that overlap, I mean, it's real, it's not very big. Like, yeah. I mean, that's a that's a lot to ask out of anybody. And I believe that I can do that. Um, I may ultimately be proven wrong, but I don't think so, at least as of right now and as of what we've done. Uh, You've talked about this on your podcast before. You talked about when Jon Stewart announced that he was retiring. You had your agent reach out to The Daily Show, even though you knew that nothing was going to come of it. You, you just wanted people to know that your head was in the game in that way. What were you, what were you hoping to accomplish with that? I wanted those people to know I was out here. Like they, 
they they whoever would be making a decision like that is probably somebody who hasn't been paying attention to somebody like me in that vein. Mm-hmm. And so let's imagine this for a second. I didn't think anything was going to ha- come of it. But this show I'm doing right now, the first conversation I had with Adam McKay, he said that in 2015, he wanted to try to figure out how to do a TV show with me. But I was very much so contractually obligated to ESPN. So it wasn't something that was going to work. But let's say that Adam McKay had been the person that was running the Daily Show at that time. Right. And all of a sudden he gets a call and is like, yo, this Bomani guy says he's interested. And he's like, yeah, get him on the phone. That might have happened. Like that was mm-hmm. a possibility. But if there was a chance, like I looked at the show like the Daily Show and I was like, yeah, I could host that. And so if I think, yeah, I can host that, let them know that I think I can host that. They might <laughs> think so too. The worst they can do is be like, I ain't never heard of that guy or hey, I just don't see it for him. All those things were possible. But what was also possible was, huh, that's an interesting idea. It it is interesting. I mean, like, as long as I've known you, you have always been pretty confident about what you can do, what you are good at, how you break through, all those kinds of things. And and for the most part, everything you have told me, you have been proven to be correct on. I wonder if there is a part of your parents, your dad especially, that wonders or wishes that grad school and uh, economics had worked out. Nah, 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 nah. They just glad I'm happy. Right. Yeah. And so let me tell you the other thing, though, about my I, I tell this story about my father. This is one of my favorite stories. So my father is a fairly revolutionary sort and not at all a materialistic man. But as time has gone on, has managed to get himself some nice things and come to appreciate that. Hey, legacy <laughs> ain't so bad. You know what I mean? Right. But he ain't a man that's been out here trying to strike it rich or anything like that. So uh, when I lived in Miami, my parents came to visit and I was not, this was, I, I had been living on the beach before, but now I was a couple of blocks off the beach, but I had me a pretty classy uh, condominium in Miami that had water on both sides and all that stuff. And he came into that bad boy. And I just remember, I've never felt like I made my father proud in life. He would just stand <laughs> on that balcony with his hands on his hips and look out there at that water and just couldn't believe it. He walked back in one time and he said to me, I may have to change some of my views about the ruling class now that I have now, now, now that I have been here. You know what I mean? And so what I've managed to do, which I think actually matters as much as anything else, is I've, I believe I've had a legitimate impact in my field. And I know that I've had a legitimate impact on people, like even if I'm talking about just one or two people, like I know what my interactions are like with folks in the street and the legitimate appreciation that a lot of people have for the work that I've done over the course of the last 20 years. And that being able to have had a legitimate positive impact on the lives of some people. Hey, man, um, I mean, it would have been cool if I got a PhD, but I think they appreciate how cool that is also. Yeah, I, you know, I, I'm glad uh, we went down that road talking about your dad, because this sort of relates to something you and I were texting about the other day, and that is your writer's room. And I told you that it's hard for me to picture anyone writing for you because you have a, a truly unique voice and you could forget the demographic stuff. It is genuinely tough for me to imagine someone that didn't grow up in Houston with your mom and your dad being able to write and you being able to deliver it in a way that sounds like you sounds authentic. Yeah, it's a, and I think that I have added an extra layer of challenge for them is I need you to write stuff that sounds like somebody would say it. Right. Because a lot of times when you write professionally, or even if you write as a hobby, what you're trying to do is write things that you could not say, right? right? Like you have the ability to now do these ornate things. And I'm like, look, I've, I've made my bones in this by talking. I've made my bones in this by saying. 
I need to be able to come out here and say it. And it needs to sound like I'm saying it. Like I need to be able to hammer those lines that matter. And I can't do that if it's a damn tongue twister, you know, like it's got to, I want to be as direct as possible because I think that's a big part of why people are able to engage with the stuff I do is because it's very direct and it's no more complicated um, than it needs to be. But it also bends and twists and turns and sometimes can get very high minded and all of that stuff. And so we got one guy, uh, one of our guys on staff, Rod Morrow. Uh, and Rod, if you listen to my stuff, Rod and Charlotte from the Morning Jones, the Black Guy Who Tips podcast. And one thing that he is incredibly helpful for with this staff is he knows how I sound. He knows how I would or wouldn't say something. And so mm-hmm. with this team, you know, people are starting off where they start and they're learning me as we go. And what I think is happening a lot also is I'm getting a lot of what they're doing and I get it and wind up kind of stripping it down a bit, but knowing what's of theirs to keep or figure out how to take an idea and then turn it into something else. Cause at the end of the day, I am probably the head writer. Like I got the last say yeah. on everything that, you know, on everything that goes, but it's a process of us all learning um, each other. Like we have to learn what everybody does well to decide who to assign what thing to. Um, but I think our guys are, are, I think everybody's really doing a good job of that right now. Like the stuff, the last script I looked at uh, to get us ready for the first episode looks really good. It looks mm-hmm. really, really strong. And it's going to be something that I can vocally deliver properly. So Jimmy Pataro was on stage at the BSM Summit last week, and he talked about you and the fact that ESPN and HBO are kind of sharing you these days. And he said that his attitude was that if game theory is a hit, that's only good for ESPN, more people coming to the right time podcast. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm overestimating here, but it does feel like as long as you've been at ESPN, you have been able to pursue at least outside writing projects. Am I right or am I overestimating there? No, the last two years have been different. Um, there have been things, though, actually, it hasn't been terribly different because they let me do the Playboy interview with mm-hmm. Coates in 2016, and that was under Skipper. But that was, like, totally not competitive Right. You know, like, that was so completely outside of their world that there would be, I mean, I took time off from work to do it. So right. they would wouldn't, They would just be hating. You're going gonna to stop me from going <laughs> to Paris for free for a week? Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Just, just, you know, just to close ranks, like that would be terrible. So no, they didn't do that. Um, I do know after the pandemic hit and some of these other things came around and I needed to refocus myself that some opportunities came up that they allowed me to do. Like, I don't think that in previous years they would have allowed me to interview Adam Silver for GQ, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they would have probably let me do the Vanity Fair piece um, because especially without there actually being a magazine, they don't, you know, that's not, the, I don't think that's yeah. something that they would care about me taking outside previously, but no, they've been, they've been good and encouraging about what I'm doing with this project. I mean, you'll have to ask them why I don't really ask too many whys when you do what I want. So um, <laughs> I, I, I haven't, I haven't really bothered to get to the bottom of what it is that's going on here, but it's been, they've, they've been good to me in the course of these last couple of years. Like I tell people, man, my contract, uh, we were negotiating a contract when the pandemic hit and they still honored the offers that they had given previous, which yeah. I, I wasn't sure that was going to happen. So no, we are all square. Me and ESPN. <laughs> I, I have nothing bad to say about that relationship. So you talked on that podcast recently about you, you said HBO is just a different level of television, not compared to ESPN, but compared to television. Right. HBO is this very different thing. And, uh, you know, I'll, I'll, you cited the fitting process and I will go behind the scenes here and say that I have a text from Bomani 
that says never get a bespoke suit. It will ruin all of your other clothes. <laughs> How did that sort of set the stage for like getting your mind right that, that, that HBO is a different animal? So one thing I want to note that I'd be curious about from other people who work in different places, because ESPN is the only place I've really done yeah. television. And the only way I've really done television at ESPN is daily television. Mm -hmm. Right. Like there's a churn in doing daily television, no matter the level that you're on. Like you can only be but so much of a perfectionist, like the type of thing right. I'm working on now is just so completely different that I don't know what is different because it's weekly or what is different because it's this place. But what I do know about this place is so um, I work on back on the record with Bob Costas. I'm a, when I'm in an executive producer meeting there, it's me. It's Howard Bryan, who I work with at ESPN. It's Ross Greenberg, who used to be the president of HBO Sports. It's Bruce Kornblatt, who's worked with Bob in various capacities for over 30 years. It's Scott Carter, who used to be the showrunner of Real Time. That is the board of executive producers on this quarterly television show that Bob Costas right, right. You know what I mean? Like, I'm like you're just not going to get that collection of talent. And honestly, that collection of power in that many places. But I've... That was like seeing how things worked around with Bob was just like, oh, they're doing these things a little bit differently. But the other part is just when I have when we have conversations with the executives about the content and it's not them steering the direction of the content, it's really them giving their insights. And sometimes it's like, yeah, we'd like to see this a little bit shorter. I think this is the way that you should go in this, you know, and those sorts of things. But what the goal is is just a little bit different from what they're working on because it's not a matter of feeding a beast in the same way that it can be in some other places where they're especially just trying to crank out as much content as they possibly can like i think it's very beneficial for us that we're on hbo because mm. you're you know this isn't just something to be another space on a streaming service or anything like that you know like this is really being yeah. treated with a care and a delicacy that people you know when we do a test shoot the executives are there you know ESPN got so many shows going on at one time. Nobody has time to do that. Right. Right. Uh, so this is the last thing I'll ask you, because I know uh, you got to run. You're you're going to be without an audience for this show in, in studio. I mean, to me, that feels yeah. absolutely right. I mean, you know, circling back to that last week tonight comparison, that and a bunch of other shows that lost the studio audience during the pandemic and have since brought it back. Like, I, I find I like it less. I, I find I don't like hearing people's reaction i like to be able to react on my own in uh in in the privacy of my own home is sort of watching the audience go away and then come back was that part of the decision at all or was it always this show doesn't have an audience yeah we've i think there had been some discussion earlier maybe bounced around at points about a studio audience but it never got to a point that anybody broached that with me as being something that we would or wouldn't do like I, you know and for me i've never done a show with a studio audience so mm -hmm. this like this isn't even something that i think of like when it comes up it's like oh yeah that is a thing that you see on a lot of shows like this oh i get it see and i think the problem that you wind up with with the studio audience to me is not even actually the presence of the audience the problem is you can't invite the studio audience in there and then let them react however they damn well please right. right everything is done to make sure the studio audience laughs when they're supposed to laugh claps when they're supposed to clap all of this in order to make it a better television product because there is a possibility you can invite people to watch your television show and it might stink 
And it's not really <laughs> helping if the people who are there are acting like it stinks, like you can boot off the stage at your own show. That's yeah. not cracking. You see what I mean? And so the the audience always has to be primed. Like, I think it could be kind of cool. We're going to do some things on this show that every now and then make people a little uncomfortable. I think it would be cool if we could have an audience that could be uncomfortable. But you could never allow that. You right. have to tell them what to do. If they're everybody on camera or everybody that's part of a TV production is told what to do. And that, to me, is the part that messes it up about having a studio audience. But I think... I don't think we'll lose anything from not having a studio audience again. I guess maybe for me, just because there's no studio audience when I'm doing in a podcast or an ESPN television studio either. Like the, the lines going to have to hit one way or another. Yeah. I mean, to, to that point, like of the audience needing to react a certain way, like your show is going to be making larger uh, societal points about sports's place in, in our lives. And it's just, I always find it weird, the group applaud for saying the right thing. I think that really takes away from what is actually a good point sometimes. Yeah, although, and one thing I'll tell you, too, is those lines that are guaranteed to get applause from a studio audience, you ain't going to really find none of them on this show. Yeah. Like one thing I'm absolutely vehemently opposed to is we ain't really about to be out here saying nothing obvious, you know, like I'm working on, we're working on something that we might do around the masters. And the one thing I've sent the word around about the masters is it ain't going to focus on racism. Everybody's talked about that. That's yeah. done. There's nothing new to say about how racist a person might believe that the Masters is. We are already there. I mean, you got a studio audience, you jump up and say, and the Masters is racist and sexist. And the next thing you know, you get a like contrived standing ovation for saying <laughs> right. what might be the most obvious thing in the world. And it, we ain't, we're not doing that. It ain't never going to sound like that. You're going to be the one brave enough to take those uh, pimento cheese sandwiches to task. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> This concludes our broadcast day. Thanks for listening to the Media Noise Podcast with Dimitri Ravanos. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes and leave a review. And check back soon for new episodes. To stay up to date on the latest sports media happenings, visit BarrettSportsMedia.com.